we have to understand rightly how to apply the Old Testament commands and particularly a lot of Old Testament narrative to our lives now under the new covenant. So if you have a superficial understanding of the Old Testament laws and you come to a commandment like the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, then you probably think, well, I've got that one covered. Like I'm, I don't really have any serious inclinations to murder. Hopefully you haven't committed murder. I'm making an educated guess that we're all free from that. And so if we approach this commandment without understanding how to apply it to our lives now, we kind of let it go over our heads. We don't let it penetrate our hearts to what the law was always pointing to. We know that Jesus unpacks a lot of these commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. And he not only upholds the law, God's law as important and says, um, you cannot abolish the law at all. He not only upholds it, but he actually helps us to see that the law pointed to a bigger reality, to a bigger issue than if you were to simply just commit murder. So the law points us to the problem of our hearts, and that is that our hearts are sick. Our hearts, apart from the grace of God, are sick. And so Jesus says, when uh, he takes this sixth commandment and says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And he, of course, says, but I tell you, as we just read out then, that if you are angry with another brother, then effectively you have a murderous heart. You've already committed murder in your heart. And so... We kind of have the two extremes, like the Old Testament understanding of not committing murder, and you think, well, I'm free of that. But then all of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, if you're angry, you've committed murder. And then all of a sudden, we're probably thinking we're not doing so well, right? I'm sure that you have become angry with someone at some stage in your life. The point that Jesus is making here is driving to the point of there is something wrong with our hearts, and the law exposes that. The law is good. We are bad. And praise God that then, as part of the new covenant, as part of the grace of God, when he sends his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and when we turn to him, we receive the promise that was given through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart. I will take out the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh, a heart that actually beats for me. A heart that is actually willing to follow me. Hearts which are set upon Christ and therefore are able to live in obedience to the law. Not in order to be right with God. Not in order to achieve salvation. But because we have been saved by his grace. And then we see the law as still good for us to follow when we understand what has been fulfilled in Christ. But good for us to follow as his children. So Eliora is starting to walk now and she has absolutely no sense of direction. Look at her, she's starting to walk up to the pulpit now and she will walk uh, off a bridge. We were walking near the lake and she was quite happy walking all the way towards the water and would have kept going. Absolutely no sense of direction. And so as I am walking with her, I need to actually guide her and guide her path and set her on a right path. So when she strays too far away, I'm gently coming in and I'm leading her back. Now, that is 
kind of how we understand the law, right? We don't actually need it to be right with God because Christ has fulfilled all righteousness and we turn to him. But the law, the way Jesus unpacks it, to not be angry, to not look lustfully upon others, to not lie or steal, that is God's chosen path for us to walk on so that we would not damage or harm ourselves. So the law, in light of the grace of God in Christ, is in a sense, our Father saying, hey, this is the right path for you to walk on. Don't have an angry, bitter heart. Don't have a lustful heart. So particularly as we understand these socially oriented laws that we're going to go through, we should understand them as this is God's chosen path for us to walk on as his redeemed children. So let's look now at murder. The people are told not to murder. Murder in the community of Israel had both the idea of premeditated murder and also of, of accidentally killing someone, which we know as manslaughter. And this word here, you shall not murder, covered both. But we clearly see in Old Testament law that there is a provision for those who commit involuntary uh, killing or basically manslaughter. They accidentally kill someone. There is a provision for them to flee to a city of refuge. And the people, the elders in that city would then would then look at the case and discern. And if they they deem that, yes, it was accidental, then they would provide sort of a safe haven for that because under God's law, the family of that person who was killed had a right to then pursue that person. And if, if that person was found to have actually committed murder, then they would be put to death. It was life for life. The main idea of this command of not murdering is quite simply the taking of life outside of God's ordained law or instruction. And God is very clear to say that murder in the community of Israel, murder in the community of God's people, was not only significant for the plain meaning of the wrong done to someone else, you're taking someone's life, but it was significant because you have sinned against God, because humans were made in the image of God. So God is very clear to say this in Genesis 9, 6, when he says, murder is wrong, so you shall not take a life because... Male and female are made in the image of God. You offend me if you take a life. I made them in my image. Human life has supreme value placed upon it because we are made in the image of God. So taking a life regardless of the offense is actually offensive toward God who created that person in his image. Therefore, it was a capital offense. Now, at this point, I think hopefully we're still passing the test as we examine our hearts. We're still probably passing the test of not murdering. Let's then look closely at how Jesus understands this commandment. So in Matthew 5, 21, Jesus explains to us, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus clearly points to the underlying issue with the taking of life. And that is 
it should be quite confronting to us because he's saying it's not some external issue. You don't just commit murder and still be a somewhat of a good person. It starts from something much deeper within you. You have a murderous heart. That's where murder comes from. So murder starts from subtle feelings of anger towards someone that grow into a hatred and resentment. As far as Jesus is concerned, murder is when we allow anger to boil up within us, leading us to hatred, malice and intentions to harm. He says, you have a murderous heart. Just like we don't sin, we actually are sinners. In the same way Jesus is saying, no, you don't just commit murder. You actually become a murderer. You have a murderous heart. It's something deep within you. Now, at this point, we should make a distinction between righteous anger and sinful anger because not all anger is sinful. So Paul in Ephesians 4 says, be angry and do not sin. We know that when Jesus clears out the temple and he makes a whip of cords to clear the animals out and he flips tables, you would say that was pretty angry of him. But it was righteous anger. There is an anger in us when we see the injustice and brokenness of this fallen world and we become angry from a place of concern for God's name concern for what is right, what we know to be right, when we see the murders of innocent school children in Nigeria by the Boko Haram, when we see those sorts of things, we are filled, I hope so, with a bit of righteous anger. That shouldn't be happening. That's a terrible thing to happen. But it doesn't take deep root within us. See, when you're angry for God's sake, when you have a righteous anger because you're angry for God's sake, for His world, then you realize that God is supremely powerful and he alone is able to bring about justice. And so we are freed from that anger when we remember that our God is in heaven, storing up wrath to pour out on all unrighteousness. And he alone will bring that about. We don't bring about wrath. We don't pour out judgment upon others. He alone will do that and we wait for him to bring that about. Now, there is an anger in contrast to that which takes deep root within us that is more often than not because we are angry for our own sake rather than God's. And when you're angry for your sake, when you're angry for your own sake, you are stuck because you can't bring about justice. You can't do it. You will be stuck in that anger that is sinful because you're angry for your sake and you cannot be a savior. You cannot bring about the justice needed. You can't become a vigilante and bring about justice to satisfy your anger. We see this anger, a few facets of this in how Jesus describes anger here in Matthew 5. So let's look at two main facets here. Um, from how Jesus describes anger. So the first aspect of this is that this kind of anger, this sinful anger, is full of pride. It's, it's full of arrogance and pride. So Jesus describes people insulting brothers. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. 
Now, some, if you have other translations of the Bible, I think the NIV might translate that second section there. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council as the word raka, which, which does mean you fool. But in uh, the ESV, the, the, the you fool that we have is actually a different word. And I'll, I'll get to that later. But the, the insulting of brother is kind of if someone in Aramaic was to say raka, which is basically a derogatory term. I won't use any words to kind of contextualize it for us, but it was a, a derogatory term, basically calling you know, someone an absolute idiot, but with a lot more force, since we throw around those terms pretty cavalier today, with a lot more force than uh, what we might use. So it was, a, it was a contemptuous form of verbal abuse to insult someone in that way. And to call anyone that, to actually insult someone, in that way must mean that you see yourself as in a place of superiority to that person. You don't really insult someone unless you in some way see yourself as knowing better than them or in a position to actually cast judgment upon them. There's a pride about this. Now, granted, there may be occasions where we do genuinely know better than people. There are people who do really idiotic things in, in this world, and we can see that. But if our response to that person or that event is purely one of scorn, like purely one of anger, if, if, if actually there's a part of you that even enjoys being angry and, like, and, and you're venting that upon that person or that event, then we must be operating from a place of dangerous pride. We think we know better. We can cast this sort of ultimate judgment. And pride is a nourishing, hospitable environment for this kind of sinful anger to grow. The kind of anger that is liable to the hell of fire. This is self-centered anger for our own sake, which becomes a disease within us. The second aspect is that it is deep-seated. So this kind of anger is not just a reactionary anger. Like if I saw someone uh, do something to Eleora and they hurt her, but I realized it was an accident, I might still get a little bit angry because I don't want to see anything happen to my loved one, but I'd probably get over it. It's just a reactionary anger. You get over it very quickly. But this kind of anger is something that is deep within us. It's the kind of anger that we, we brood over. The, the word for angry here is the same word used for wrath. It's being wrathful towards someone and the idea of saying you fool so this third section of verse 22 saying you fool is the idea of basically calling someone immoral um, so it's not the we kind of throw around fool but it's actually like in that context it was calling someone effectively like a prostitute or a word along those lines like calling into question their morality and basically in that context completely disregarding them as a human being saying you are too loose of a person to even be considered a human being you're a fool it was used to destroy someone's reputation it would be uh cast out we were just talking um, Jan and James before about honor shame cultures and how um, that 
if, if you are called that, then you bring shame upon your family and, and you would be disowned by your family in, in order for them to save face. And this is the context of the Bible. So this is saying, Jesus is saying anyone who, who tries to destroy anyone's reputation. And um, I think we as, as Christians, particularly in this context, I'm not all that active on social media, but I know I've seen it before where we can become very good at being keyboard warriors and you know, commenting on certain things, maybe even in conversations. I know I've been in danger of this before in um, bringing someone's name into disrepute without actually being careful about my words. And I think that's kind of more of what this is saying here. It's saying, don't be someone who would tarnish someone's name or their reputation. If that's present in you, you have a murderous heart a deep-seated anger. This is the kind of anger which a part of you clings to. I don't know if you've felt that before. You know how sometimes you get angry and there's like this, this war within you. And there's this part of you that knows you should get out of it. And it's just saying, hey, Tom, stop being a prideful idiot and, and get out of this. And then there's other part that just wants to justify your place being angry and stay in that. I wonder if you've ever had that. And one of the ways that you might know this is if you, you have conversations with people or maybe even with yourself and the whole conversation is geared around keeping you in a position of justification and keeping the other person in a place of condemnation. And you know it's really bad when you're trying to throw in some some soft compliments like, you know, I know they don't really mean it and I know, you know they do this really well, but they still did this. And you keep them in that place of condemnation and you keep yourself in a place of justification. And this is the kind of anger that is prideful and it is deep-seated within us. And this is what Jesus is talking about. And we have to be wary of this kind of anger in our culture because anger in this day and age is slowly becoming something that is virtuous. You've probably heard of outrage culture. Anger is actually becoming something that uh, we see as virtuous. So you kind of show how woke or enlightened you are by how angry and how outraged you are at things of society. And that's how you show that you are intellectually superior in our societies by being angry about something, caring about justice. So anger has become something not only permissible, but it's praiseworthy. If you're not angry, then do you care? Do you care about this world? And many people are brought up with this framework now. This is the framework that we operate in. To be intelligent or moral is to be angry and outraged about something. You have to be passionately upset and because we as human beings are wired to follow social norms. That's just the way we are. We have to fight against it. Our natural inclination is to just follow social norms. People now don't even really care about the content of what they're angry about. They just feel the need to be angry. I think what this has done is it's left our generation and upcoming generations with excessive emotionalism toward justice-related issues but significantly lacking in reasoning abilities to dialogue with someone. 
we're just left with all of this anger is good. Let's get angrier and angrier, but not enough rational abilities to actually reason with someone and kind of argue your point across. So what ends up happening is people just shout louder. And that's where we get cancel culture from. Cancel culture comes from outrage culture because you're not uh, actually able to dialogue with someone. So when you can't get your point across, you just cancel them and say, no, you're ignorant, get out of here. And that's not a good culture for us to be in. So we have to be wary of this world that we live in. I think our, our culture has all of the necessary ingredients for anger to actually find a place within us where we sort of think it's not too bad. It's not too bad to be angry because it's kind of permissible. Well, in fact, more, it's more than permissible. It's actually praiseworthy in our society. Now, what happens when this anger remains? What happens when this anger actually stays within you? When we, we allow this kind of anger to remain within us, we become bitter and hostile. It's natural to have a reactionary anger, like I said, to the injustices of this world. But when we hold on to that anger and allow it to take deep root within us, then it becomes bitterness and our minds are shaped by resentment and hatred. And this is a very dangerous place to be. This kind of becomes a filter. It becomes a filter where everything that comes through, you filter it through this thing of bitterness. And so your natural inclination is to be sort of negative or hostile toward new things. And I wonder if, if your life, if you would examine your life, would you say that it is shaped by cynicism? Do you find yourself easily frustrated at people? The words of Jesus here are calling us to examine ourselves and be very careful that we don't have this kind of murderous heart within us. This isn't a light issue. Paul is very clear to go on and, and say in Ephesians that we'll go over in a bit. Uh, anyone, don't be deceived, anyone who has this form of impurity like angerness, bitterness, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They have a murderous heart. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. I think surely one of the most liberating things for us, I know it is for me, would be the ability to be free from anger. Imagine that. Imagine being completely free from bitterness, completely free from anger, completely free from frustration. To not have that instinct to seize up whenever injustice comes. I know I get uh, kind of angry um, in ways that can be sinful over just like really, quite frankly, silly things. Like I can't stand it when you're waiting in a line in the road and clearly everyone is, is waiting in this one lane and there's a lane free but you're supposed to be merging in and there's always a few people who come up and I just can't stand that. And I, I remember watching footage of all of the COVID testing and you know how you would have to line up and you've got to leave gaps so that people can get into particular streets and there were a few people who then went back down that street and snuck in in front and I would just, I, it makes my blood boil and I think about it and I just think, why do I care so much about this? Like it is frustrating, you gotta admit it's frustrating, but why do I let, it actually like causes me to seize up and I don't want that. I wanna be 
set free from that reaction to be over little things of injustice because if I allow that to remain, then there will be more and more things done against me and it will, be just, it will just plague me and it will plague you. It will cause you to be taken captive by bitterness. And so what a beautiful thing to be set free from outrage culture and have a, a peaceful culture about you, to create a peaceful, harmonious culture where you're actually set free from that. I think the only way that will come about is if you have a profound trust in God's sovereignty and his justice. If you have a profound trust that every hidden thing, every form of injustice will be brought into the justice of God. In Psalm 37, this is a beautiful psalm that I go to uh, a lot, which helps with feelings of injustice maybe a bit more than just traffic injustices i mean like things that actually have the potential like um people committing murder and um you know unjust crimes and these sorts of things and david here says in psalm 37 fret not yourself because of evildoers do not be envious of wrongdoers for they will soon fade away like the grass and wither like the green herb Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. So he's saying, don't fret because of evildoers. Don't fret because of those who do wrong. Like the grass, they will fade. They're going to fade away. Don't fret because of them. There is a God who is going to bring true justice, ultimate justice. So how then do we become free from this anger and bitterness? How do we become free from this? I want to finish with just three points on how we actually become free from bitterness and anger. So the first point is that we must recover our understanding of the forgiveness we have in Christ. You have to, if you want to be free from anger, you have to uncover the forgiveness you have in Christ. Anger will lead to holding unforgiveness. And we need to recover our understanding of the forgiveness we have in Christ. So in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Listen to that description. All bitterness, all wrath, anger, clamor, slander. That sounds like a very accurate description of outrage culture. Outrage culture is saying like, be angry, be bitter, be loud and be noisy. Get your point across. It's the total opposite of what Paul is saying. Don't, don't live in that culture. Don't allow anger to grab a hold of you in that way. Don't slander people. Paul says this, this must never be found among you. A few verses earlier, he says, let no corrupting talk be found among you. Let nothing, don't let any corrupting talk. That's not fitting for a Christian. Instead, speak, speak that which is for edification, for building up. So in verse 32, Paul then gives the opposite of this. He says, be kind to one another. So he's saying instead of. So instead of being angry and bitter and slandering people, here's the opposite of this. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Instead of bitterness and anger, be kind, be tender-hearted, be gentle, be a forgiving person rather than someone who holds on to grudges. Be a forgiving person, be freed from unforgiveness. And what is the basis of this for Paul? What's the basis of this for us? He says, do this in the same way God in Christ has forgiven you. You will be able to do this if you understand the forgiveness you have in Christ by God the Father. I think this is so important. We have to like be pelted in the face with the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. One of um, the things that I recognize in my own life and as I kind of survey our, our culture, what I, I want to see and what I see when I read through uh, stories of through church history of kind of revival breaking out in the hearts of people and um, beautiful things happening in the church is more often than not, there was just a grief over sin. There was broken heartedness over sin. There was a grief among the people that recognized their sin before a holy God and thought, I, I, I've just offended God. And yes, they lived in the grace. They, 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 they didn't, it wasn't self-flagellation. It wasn't like more repentance will make me right with God. It was just this understanding that sin had so plagued them. Sin had so plagued them and they had offended God. And I think when we see the cross, when we look at the cross, we see two extremes. The cross, in the cross, we see how far God is willing to go, how great his love is for his people to send his own son, to send his own son to die on a cross. We see the extent of God's love. But I think the other extreme that we see is we see how much we must have offended God for him to allow his perfect spotless son to die upon a cross. I think of my own daughter now, and I know she's not casting the best picture to, to actually, um, for this example, but uh, all jokes aside, I think of like, what, what would it take for me to allow harm to come to Eliora? I, I could never allow that. I would happily give my life for her to prevent harm coming from her. Imagine what God the Father must have felt to see his son there upon the cross, to see his son mocked, spat upon, reviled because of our sin. We must have offended God for him, for that to have to happen. There must be a great offense. And so when we understand that, when we understand that, then we appreciate the forgiveness we have. God was willing to give up his son to then bring us into his family. And Paul is saying, forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you. The point is, if you understand that, if you understand the forgiveness you have, how could you then hold unforgiveness toward anyone else? How could you then be angry in an unrighteous way toward anyone else if you have understood the forgiveness we have in Christ. 
Our society is one where our wrongs are now becoming not a, not a result of our own doings, but they are a prop, they are a result of our environment, which often the case, that, that is true in some respects. But it, what it does is for, for us to always say, hey, that's okay, you're just a product of your environment, the environment's the problem, you're okay. And it makes people realize, you know what, yeah, I'm, I'm not so bad. I don't have to take accountability for my errors. That's everyone else's problem. And that's, that's totally anti-gospel. The gospel says, no, you are bad. You are wretched. You are, you are sinful and still have my grace, have my love. That's the point of grace. If it was a problem with our environment, then Jesus didn't have to die. We sinned, not the environment. We sinned. And God was still willing to send his son. Understand that and be free from the debilitating nature of holding unforgiveness because we come back under the forgiveness we have in Christ. Second aspect of this to remember, we entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. So Peter gives a beautiful, beautiful picture for us to follow in his letter in chapter 2. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If anyone had a right to be angry, it was Jesus. Surely, if anyone had a right to be angry, it was the perfect, sinless son who, when he was spat upon and reviled, he surely had a right to then turn around and say, how dare you? How dare you do that to the son of God, to the creator of all things? Yet he allowed it. He didn't revile in return. He gave us this beautiful picture of humility. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to his father who is the just judge. And Peter says, to this we have been called. We likewise entrust ourselves to the only one who is just and who will bring about justice. And if you believe, I hope you believe, that God is totally in control and totally able to bring about justice. It's not as if God has lost control. God is totally in control. And if you believe that and know that he is working everything together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose and our light and momentary afflictions are working for us in eternal weight of glory. If you know all these beautiful truths that God is still what people mean for evil, God means for good. He's still bringing it together. Then there is a wonderful and peculiar peace that we as followers of Jesus can have amidst all injustice because we know he is bringing about justice. He's in control. We entrust ourselves to God's justice. We follow the way of our savior, our suffering servant who was reviled and did not revile in return. And finally, a very simple application. Thirdly, for those who, who, who want to be free from anger, 
Just a very simple application. If, um, and that is to, to pray, to pray for those who you are angry with, kind of like what Jesus commands and says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. It's very hard to stay angry with someone if you are genuinely praying for them. I've tried it and it will feel, if you do it, it will feel very difficult. It'll feel like a bit of a gym workout. Like it'll feel like a struggle to be praying for someone. But persevere and you have to trust that in prayer something spiritual is happening. And so when we are angry with someone, even those who who we feel like we should never forgive, pray for them. Pray for God's justice to be done in their life. Pray that they will come to know the forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Pray that they would be set free and see what that does to you. See the junk that gets out of your system as you are praying. Feel the bitterness just be removed from you. Anger will be discarded from your heart, kind of excavated from within you and and pushed aside as you pray for those whom you are angry with. Let me finish with the example of Stephen in Acts 7 and 8. So Stephen is one of the seven godly men who were chosen in Acts 6 in the early church, a man full of the Holy Spirit with the face of an angel, it says. And Stephen gets stoned to death. A spoiler, you probably know, he gets stoned to death. So he is preaching the gospel to the people of Israel and he gets killed. And Stephen, as he is... Uh, preaching to them in Acts 7, he has a form of what I would call righteous anger. So he's explaining to the Israelites, he's wanting them to follow the truth of Jesus. And he says, you stiff-necked people, always resisting God, just like the prophets. Seems quite angry, but he has has a righteous anger toward them. And it it doesn't take deep root. It's not the kind of anger that, that takes deep root. Because then, as they hear it and he is being stoned to death. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he is killed in brutal fashion, stoned to death. And in Acts 7, as this is happening, Luke records that Stephen looks up to heaven right before he is about to perish. And he says, It says, full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen has this picture of the glory of Christ. He sees Jesus standing. And notice just as a a side point to that, that we know Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. But precious is the death of his saints in his sight that now we see that Jesus is standing, watching as one of his saints is about to be murdered, as he's about to bring him home. And Stephen gazes upon the glory of God. He sees this beautiful picture of his Savior and he says to those who are about to kill him, Lord, don't hold their sin against them. He was totally free from anger. And that has to be, if you want to be set free from anger, 
See the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Be captivated with his majesty. See how beautiful he is. Recover your understanding of the forgiveness you have in Christ. Meditate upon his word. Be part of as you are doing in a community that constantly gathers around prayer and the word to see God's glory. That is the picture we need. That's the picture Stephen had to be free from anger. That's the picture we must have to be free from anger, to live in obedience to Jesus' word. Look to Jesus with every ounce of discipline you have that God's grace will empower you to do and be free from anger. Let me pray for us and then we might sing a song and we'll finish with with, uh, the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for these beautiful truths that we have in your word. Thank you for... Thank you for the ability to, to be free from anger, though it seems impossible, but, but you, Jesus, would not have said it if you were not willing to empower us by your grace to live free from this kind of anger that is liable to the hell of fire. Help us, for we need it. Help us. We are so prone, like we were just singing before, we're so prone to wander. We're so prone to stray away from the obedience of the faith and we need your grace to strengthen us to do it and we pray that you would give us a beautiful picture of your majesty and your worth like Stephen had as he was about to die and just how he faced death with such a witness asking that you would forgive the very people that were murdering him We need that picture of the glory of Christ. We pray that you would bring that about in our gathering for your namesake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.